Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to our latest vodcast. And this will probably be a two-parter entitled Imaging the Thoracic Aorta, Focusing on Data Acquisition and Some of the Typical Findings. And I gave this at the SCCT meeting the other day. And I focused on a few different points that I thought maybe it would be good to focus on with you guys. And um, topics I'll address in this talk will be looking at some of the pearls and pitfalls, particularly sources of error in imaging the thoracic aorta, looking at some of the protocol selections and options for protocol selections, looking at the impact of display techniques and post-processing tools in the evaluation of thoracic aorta, and then it's just a little bit on imaging of specific examples in native and post-operative patients. Again, in this talk, I'm not going to try to go through all the different type A's and type B's and really focus on clinical cases, but rather focus on some of the basic principles. Just some simple anatomy. I read a few good articles, and I'll give you some numbers. The arch has basically uh, several common variations. Uh, most common is where there's three branches of arch anatomy, the right anominate artery, left carotid, and left subclavian, and that's in about 70% of patients. The second common one is when you have two branches, which are the right anominate and left subclavian arising from a common trunk, and then the left subclavian arising separately. So there's two, and that's often defined as a bovine arch, when you have right anominate and left, and left carotid from a common trunk. And the third variation would be when the left vertebral artery arises off the arch between the left carotid and left subclavian uh, directly off the aorta. And that's about 5% of cases. Okay, that's pretty simple. And here was an article by Burkov pretty recently. 65.9% of patients have both normal aortic arch branching patterns and normal venous anatomy. Variants in the arch branching were present in 32.4% and anomalies in 1.5%. And venous anomalies were pretty uncommon in about 0.7%. That gives you some uh, basic uh, numbers just to look at. So that's, that's nice and simple. Okay, what else? There often is a question as to what the size of the aorta is. And there's a good article by Kazaruni and Associates a few months back in Radiographics making the point that the ascending aorta mid-portion should always be less than 4 centimeters, descending less than 3 centimeters. And they also put in there a very nice chart, 432. Very nice numbers. Again, you can have some variation, but you got to be thinking under four. Now, it's important that you have some idea about size because when you look at thoracic aortic aneurysms and you say, when do surgeons operate? Well, typical things might be ascending above 5.5, descending above 6.5 centimeters, and increase in aneurysm size of greater than one centimeter in a year. And we're going to talk a little bit later about how we measure to make certain that we are measuring correctly. But those are some good magic numbers, normal, and then when something is done. Okay, so let's now look at technique. We talk about the possibilities, non-contrast, arterial, and venous or delayed phase imaging. Now, in terms of uh, techniques, we'll also speak about how we time injections, but we'll get to that in a moment. First, what about non-contrast CT? I think in routine follow-up aortas, you don't need non-contrast studies. I think non-contrast studies are critical in the acute setting, rule out dissection. They're also critical in cases where you're going to look for an endovascular leak. A very important thing to really think about with non-contrast scans is you don't need thin sections. You don't need high dose. You can do relatively low dose studies, maybe with something like a flash acquisition. But what you're looking for is high density in the wall of the aorta, classic intramural hematomas. Now, with intramural hematomas, it's important to recognize that adjusting the window width and narrowing the window will make it easier to see the presence of blood. 
image on your left window with a 400, image on your um, right image with a 200. So very nicely shown in that example. Now the reason we like non-contrast CTs, here it's obvious an intramural hematoma, but if you look at that same case with contrast, you see the soft tissue in the wall, but and it's consistent with thrombus or intramural hematoma, but you really can't tell it's a vacuity or not because the density is so variable. Uh, blood against contrast really doesn't show well. On the non-contrast, it shows very nicely. And even when you take that same case, no matter really how you look at it, you're going to have the same issues. So if we take the same case and we put it in a sagittal view or we put it in a coronal view, it's going to really be doing the same thing. So for example, here it is in a uh, coronal view. You see the intramural hematoma, I guess you can assume to be intramural hematoma. You even see a small ulceration, but again, the acuteness is hard to tell on a contrast-enhanced study. So non-contrast works well. Second example, same thing. Look at the descending aorta. There's high density. It's very subtle. The images are a little bit noisy. Patient's arms were by the side, but if you look carefully, you can measure the lumen is 36, and the intramural hematoma, or suspected intramural hematoma, is 70. Intramural hematomas often do not enhance, and so when you give IV contrast, you can see it here very nicely tracking from the arch through mid-descending thoracic aorta down through the diaphragm. And now if you measure the lumen, the lumen measured 248 Hounsfield units, and the uh, extraluminal component, the intramural hematoma, was about 82. So very little change from the non-contrast study. Uh, sagittal views, again, can be very helpful. That intramural hematoma often tracks a long distance. It kind of compresses the lumen, but very nicely shown uh, in this example. Okay? So that's why we do non-contrast scans. Now, what about arterial phase imaging? Now, for many patients, particularly with older scanners, preset delays, maybe a 30-second delay worked very nicely. But with the very fast scanners these days, where the scan times are taking less than a second, it's very possible to be scanning too early. Typically, it's not an issue with the aorta of scanning too late, but it's too early. And therefore, either test bolus or bolus tracking become critical. Now, test bolus is something we do routinely for cardiac CT. Uh, bolus tracking is typically what we do for routine aortas. Now here's just an example when you scan too early. This would be great for a pulmonary artery study, but you can see there's no contrast in the ascending or descending aorta. There's no way you can make the diagnosis of dissection or anything else on this study. If you look at this case, just just a good example showing you when you give a test bolus, what happens? Initially, the pulmonary artery is bright, the SVC is bright, pulmonary arteries wash out, the aorta becomes denser. So it's a matter of picking the right time. And you can see from the image on your bottom right, there is actually a good point where both the pulmonary arteries and aortas are opacified. That's often a good point for doing a, uh, let's say, triple rule out. Now, in terms of bolus tracking, one of the things we do in terms of picking a trigger point is we recognize that the faster the scanner, the higher the trigger point. If a scan is going to take 30 seconds to do, like on a 16-slice scanner, what you probably would do is trigger earlier at, let's say, 170 Hounsfield units in the ascending or descending aorta. And so as you start scanning, the contrast density will keep going up. When you have a very fast scanner and the scan is a second, the second you press the trigger to scan, the scan is basically over. So you need to trigger at a much higher point, and we're often triggering at something like 250. And here's just a nice example where we did the triggering at 250, 
beautiful opacification of ascending and descending aorta. Now you can do triggering in the ascending aorta or descending aorta. Typically we do ascending aorta in coronary studies when we trigger, but for a lot of routine aortic work, it pays to put it in the mid-descending thoracic aorta because that's a good timing point and you really are certain then that you're gonna have good opacification of both ascending and descending aorta. So that works very nicely. Now, in terms of IV contrast protocols, volumes range between 80 and 120. The faster the scan, the lower the volumes you can use. We use Omni 350 or Visi 320, depending on the patient's creatinine. I like an injection rate of around four cc's. We'll typically go up to five. Cardiac is five to six. Uh, you can get by with three for thoracic aorta in most cases. Preferred injection site, right into cubital fossa, 18-gauge angiocath. We'll go with 20 as necessary. Uh, and then you can use saline chasers. Many people use saline chasers. It allows you to use, at times, a little bit less IV contrast and get better efficiency from the contrast. So saline chasers typically are used at the same injection rate as the routine uh, uh, injection. I also find saline chasers to be especially helpful when you're doing long studies like thoracic aorta and abdominal aorta or thoracic and abdominal and runoff. In terms of protocols, key things for us are to make certain we get a great study at low dose. So on our system, we're using care dose. Uh, in terms of collimation, we use a narrowest collimate of 0.6. We go with the slice thickness of 0.75, reconstructing every 0.5, which is about a pitch of 0.7 to 0.8. Uh, we use the thin sections because we're going to do 3D reconstructions and multiplanar. Now, when you go from that to, say, a flash scanner, the protocol basically is the same in terms of slice thickness and interscan spacing. Of course, the biggest thing is at the flash, we're running a pitch of about three. So scan times are basically about a second. So remember before I mentioned about triggering, higher trigger point because the scan is so quick. Now, in thoracic aortic imaging, one of the next questions we typically ask with protocols is, are we going to gate the study or not? Gating has the advantage, particularly if you're looking at the aortic root and ascending aorta. There's no motion. And so if we're looking for type A dissections or any pathology in the root or ascending aorta, it's the way to go. You often get a free look at the coronary arteries, particularly in patients with lower heart rate, and you routinely can get visualization of the aortic valve. Now, remember, what's the downside? Well, the downside is you need to have a relatively slower heart rate, preferably, though you don't necessarily need to. 64 slice if you want to see the coronaries. You want a heart rate around 60, but steady in the 70s, we can do a good job with a thoracic aorta. Of course, things like dual source make it much easier because there you have a lot of variability in the heart rate that you can put up with and still get a very good study of the thoracic aorta. Now, What's the disadvantage of doing gating? Well, the disadvantage is it's an increased radiation dose because of a slower pitch. So that's the main disadvantage. Again, with gated acquisitions, we are able now to get a smaller area of scanning. We don't necessarily scan between 0 and 90%, maybe targeting 60 and 70%. And so we can lower the doses to make uh, uh, that an, not such much of a disadvantage. Now, a few cases to make the point about gating. Here's a case, type A dissection, ascending aorta, descending aorta. You very nicely see the flaps. This was not a gated study. The patient's heart rate wasn't very high, but you can see here a really good look at the aortic root, the arch. Here it is on a sagittal view, the, the ascending aorta down to the valve level and the arch and descending thoracic aorta. We see things very nicely, type A dissection, no gating worked fine.
What about this case? Look at that linear line in the ascending aorta. Now, if a patient's heart rate is fast and you don't have a gated study, you often get lines in the ascending aorta or descending aorta. Most of the time you recognize them as artifact because they go straight through the aorta. They go into the atrium or pulmonary artery. Often you could do reconstructions which help you. But in this case, I'm not certain there's a dissection or not. There's no pericardial effusion. There's no other findings, but this doesn't look so good. And then I go here and I go to the coronal view and boy, there could be a dissection there and here it is a few more times in 3D. I just don't know. Obviously, this patient we rescanned with the gated acquisition, it was normal. So again, your certainty level goes up. If you're looking at the aortic root ascending aorta, just gate the patient. Another example, type A dissection, beautiful example, gated acquisition. There are the two flaps, no problem seeing them. There's the ascending aorta. You can follow it down to the aortic leaflets. You can follow it down to the coronary arteries. As I mentioned, you can routinely get good looks at the coronary arteries. So just very important to be able to do that. Just as important as calling a dissection is to say there is no dissection. Here a patient has a dilated aortic root with big sinus valsalva. Look at it on the sagittal and coronal views. Lobulated, that's dilated sinus valsalva. Uh, here it is again, one more view. But they're dilated, but there's no dissection. You see the aortic valve leaflets very nicely. This is most commonly seen in our experience in Marfans, but you can see from this chart there are a number of other things that can possibly do it. Now, I mentioned before, particularly ER setting, we think about triple rule out. If you do a gated ascending aorta on a dual source scanner, you're, you don't have to worry about heart rate typically, you get good coronary arteries. Or if you're going to gate the patient, perhaps you can lower the heart rate with beta blockers. But here's a nice example. The aortic root looks dilated, but there's no dissection. And when you look hard, you can get a good look at the coronary arteries. There's coronary artery disease, calcified and non-calcified plaque in the LAD, which you can see here, with stenosis in the 50% range. Again, a free finding if you're doing gated acquisitions of the ascending aorta, so it can be very valuable. Or in this case, look how nicely, this patient is a 16 years old, cholesterol 1600. This patient has familiar hypocholesterolemia, supervalvular aortic stenosis, and you can see that beautifully on these images, but also look at the takeoff of the patient's right coronary, the takeoff of the left main, and you can see stenosis in both vessels. So just very, very impressive disease. Okay, now you've acquired the data set. We got a good data set. It's gated in most situations. We need to look at it. Well, for that, we need to look at the different visualizations from axial to NPR to curved planar to 3D imaging. And this becomes a very important part of how we do the, uh, the imaging in this scenario. So let me just look at a few points and then we'll take a short break. So in terms of looking at the thoracic aorta, here's a nice axial image. This wasn't gated, you can see some motion, but you see what looks like a dissection in the descending thoracic aorta. Now, how far it goes, what's going on, you can think about it looking at the axial images, but look how nicely in the coronal display, it's a large ulcer with an intramural hematoma, beautifully seen there, and as we go into 3D volume rendering, nicely shown, you can see that ulceration. It's not really a dissection. It's a large ulcer with intramural hematoma. And then you could track it with curved planar reconstruction. So what I've now shown you 
is how we can use all of our tools to get the best information to the referring clinician and not worry about thousands of slices, but look at critical information. A second example, patient had a surgical repair of the arch and someone was suggesting a dissection. You can see some changes in the distal portion of the arch, but what's going on exactly? Well, when you look at the sagittal views, what you can see is the repair. The surgeon put basically a graft in place and kind of interposed that graft, almost like an interception appearance. And here it is nicer shown on the 3D reconstructions, volume rendering, and MIP. So what you're looking at now is the reconstruction process. You're not looking at a dissection or a complication or an ulceration or intramural hematoma. And you can see it when you track the vessel. You see that pink line image on your right? We now show you, almost looks like an antrum of the stomach, quite frankly, but it's telescoping in is the correct word. And look how nicely there or here we can see it. So again, how we look at things will very much define uh, our accuracy. And again, you would not want to make the wrong diagnosis in this patient. So with that, um, let's take a break and we'll start back on looking at some of our criteria for size measurements in the aorta. And with that, have a great day.